If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Hilon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Milan and Hilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I'm going to start with a confession because confession's good for the soul. I have never, ever preached a sermon on Ruth. I'm a guy who gravitates to the gospel passages in the lectionary and probably unconsciously assume that stories that are this complicated and multi-layered and misunderstood as this beautiful story is should just be preached on by women which is just another way of saying that when you know something is about a woman and about women and you are not one, you may be scared to go there. (laughs) But I am surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who are also well-intentioned antagonists, including Lori, who's urged me not to be scared, my wife, Sean, who just plain scares me, And and my good colleague at OCU, Dr. Lisa Wolf, professor of Hebrew Bible, whose work on Ruth was great preparation for this sermon. And a disclaimer to begin, one sermon on Ruth is an insult to the 10 sermons at least that are contained in this remarkable story about famine, love, loss, in-laws, outlaws, seduction, 
and the devotion that often comes to us from the most unlikely places. I first read Ruth in a seminary classroom in the late 70s without a single female student in the room. The teacher was male, and we all thought it was a really good read, sort of like an ancient soap opera. This love story between the foreign widow Ruth and the Israelite admirer Boaz, and most of us were, of course, most interested in what exactly happened on the threshing floor. Because as we all used to say when we were required to read stuff in high school we didn't really want to read, are there any good parts? You know about the threshing floor. Anyway, we'll get to this. We'll get to it in a second. Little did I know that this wasn't really the good part at all. Thanks in part to Phyllis Tribble's book, God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality. It is in fact not just a book about family dynamics and whose God is the real God, but about something much, much more explosive and important right now, and that is immigration. As the caravan moves toward the southern border, and as the president prepares to do battle with what he calls invaders, we are dangling now over the abyss of fascism. What the 82% of Christian evangelicals who voted for Trump need to realize is that Ruth is in the caravan. She's there, even if she's called by another name. So here's the Cliff Notes version of the book of Ruth. It begins, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Ruth comes right after the book of Judges for a reason. It was a terrible time. The last line in the book of Judges puts it plainly. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes, a.k.a. anarchy reigned and life was cheap. There are horrific acts of murder in Judges, assaults by Samson on his own people and the Philistines, which ended in his complete obliteration of the enemy and himself, and a story about the barbarous abuse of a lone woman by a host of bestial Israelites, which caused the near extinction of one of the tribes of Yahweh. It was a crazy, murderous, perverse, and lawless time. When we turn the page to read the book of Ruth, we wonder, will this be more of the same? But the tragedy here is a famine, a famine, not uncommon in the southern desert of Israel, but something we have a hard time relating to. Famines still happen around the world, of course, and we will not escape them in the future, but most of us go to the store when we are hungry or out to eat. Famines happen far away to other people, and we turn away from the images of emaciated children when they appear on our television screens. But in the ancient Near East, when famine struck, you became a refugee in search of a place where you might find food and some chance at a future. That has not changed. So it was that a typical Israelite family of four is forced to leave their home and move to Moab. Moab, a tiny place east of Bethlehem, across the Dead Sea, higher up in the mountains, better soil, more rain. There to live among, of course, the Moabites, whom the Israelites hated. 
How do we know they hated them? Well, just consider how the Moabites got their name. In the story of the great flood, Lot's two daughters were determined to repopulate the earth after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so they chose the only man around, which was dear old dad. They got him drunk and lay with him, and one of the progeny of this incest was named Moab, which tells you all you need to know about how the Israelites felt about the Moabites. They are the people of incest. No doubt they are murderers, thieves, drug dealers, rapists, and I'm sure a few good people, <laughs> to recall the words of our supreme leader. But when you are hungry, you have to go someplace. When you're hungry, you have to go someplace. When you're hungry, you have to go someplace. Please hold that thought. The husband and the father of this family is named Elimelech, which means my God is king, and his wife is named Naomi, which means sweetness and light. Pleasant, it also means. They have two sons whose names are Malon and Chilean, and nobody's quite sure what those names mean. So we'll just call them the imported lads of Moab, because that's a nice sound to it. They grow up and they marry Moabite women, which is just great. But everybody did not live happily ever after. First, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. Without a male protector, a widow in the ancient world has usually been given a sentence of destitution. But Naomi still has her two sons, then they both die. What remains now are three widows, two of whom are Naomi's daughters-in-law, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. They are both foreigners. They are both foreigners. They are both foreigners. Hold that thought. For 10 years, these three women survived somehow in a place where a woman without a man was shunned by society and possessed few rights. These three had the added stigma of being an Israelite widow who worshiped Yahweh, living with two Moabite widows who worshiped a god named Chemos, which makes you wonder if perhaps they all just agreed not to talk about religion. Then Naomi hears that the famine has finally ended back home, and so she sets out on a long journey back to the land of Israel. The only problem is that Naomi wants to go home alone, but her two daughters-in-law want to go home with her. Not the plan, she tries gently at first to tell them. I appreciate all you've done for me during this terrible time, but I need to go home and you need to stay home. There's no future for you in Israel. And Naomi even uses religious language to make her case. May Yahweh grant that you will find rest and security, each of you in the house of your husband. Of course, who are no more. Which is a very nice way to say, please leave me alone now and go home to live with your mothers. I never belonged here, Naomi is thinking, and you will never belong where I am going. These two are what the Hebrew scriptures call foreign wives, and there are numerous examples in the Hebrew scriptures of how much discrimination foreign wives faced. The last thing Naomi needs are foreign wives who are also foreign widows who also worship a different god. That would be too much baggage at the border. But Orpah and Ruth insist on going back to Israel with their mother-in-law, 
Naomi tries to explain the laws of leveret marriage, which stipulate that when a married man dies, a close relative, usually a brother, but a cousin if no brother is available, is to marry the widow in order to keep the male line going. Naomi claims to have no male relatives, which turns out not to be true, but she desperately wants to persuade these two, her daughters-in-law, to turn back and stay in Moab. So she uses this ridiculous example, telling them that, hey, even if I met a man on the Bethlehem Road and we got married on the spot and had two sons, which is highly unlikely given Naomi's age, would her daughters-in-law wait for these phantom boys to grow up to marry them? Then they would be too old. Then she concludes by saying, quote, it has been far more bitter for me than you because Yahweh's hand has turned against me. Naomi has not only lost her husband and her sons, but now she is questioning, as did Job, whether the God she worships is truly just. Orpah, and by the way, Oprah Winfrey, that's a, just a transliteration of this name from the Bible. Orpah gets the message and turns around and hitches a ride home. Her name means back of her neck, which is what we see as she turns and walks away. But not Ruth. Her name means my cup runneth over. And she refuses to go back. Instead, she clung to Naomi, clung to her. The same powerful word used in Genesis 2, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. She is hanging on Naomi emotionally, perhaps even physically, and then makes her famous speech. Do not force me to abandon you or to turn away from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. This is read at weddings a lot. The response from Naomi, which is never read at weddings, <laughs> is chilling, as if she has not even heard her. The Hebrew reads, quote, she ceased to speak to her. She gives her the silent treatment. But Ruth does return with Naomi to Israel, and of course that makes the rest of the story possible. Meeting Boaz, whose hospitality to a foreign widow in the gleaning fields is remarkable, Naomi hears about Boaz and hatches this plan to help Ruth, instructing her in the words of my colleague, Dr. Wolf, to wash, dress, and smell sweet and lie in wait for Boaz. Then after Boaz has topped off his day with a little partying, i.e. a bit of drink, Ruth is to quote, uncover his feet, which Dr. Wolf frankly admits does not mean that she gave him a foot massage. <laughs> By the first light of morning, Boaz sends Ruth home with her cloak full of barley and calls her a worthy woman. They marry or they are married since in the, in the ancient world in Israel, if you had sex with her, you married her, and they live happily ever after. When they have a son, Obed, Naomi is full of joy and becomes the boy's foster parent, Obed. The child of a Moabite widow was King David's grandfather. And I suspect that's a very important part of the story to remind us all that Yahweh is the one true God and that 
women are redeemable, but only in the context of the men who marry them and the sons of promise they bear. There's something else that Ruth has to teach us, or maybe Naomi teaches us, who may be more the object of this story than Ruth. She became bitter. She even changes her name to Bitter. She tells her friends back in, in, back in Bethlehem that she went away full and came home empty. That's the title of a lot of sermons about Ruth. Went out full, came back empty. Much has been made of this bitterness. But, you know, we all become bitter, do we not, when we experience profound loss? Doesn't famine come into everyone's life? And to survive, don't we do things we would never have imagined ourselves doing? If we are hungry and desperate, and there is neither life nor safety in the land where we live, we leave. We take a journey. The journey may be even more dangerous than staying home, but we all want a chance at life, and so we join the caravan. Here comes the caravan, and here comes our troops who are in fact prohibited from carrying out police functions. And if you are paying attention, here comes the clash of cultures turned into a political ad by a president who has shown no empathy for anyone and I can't tell has ever served anyone but himself for his entire life, using the desperation of the poor to make a political commercial and scare us to death. I thought I'd seen the worst, not, not until now. Ruth was a despised, foreign, idol-worshiping heroine who converts to following Yahweh and who shows more faith in this way than many actual Judeans, writes Dr. Wolf. But consider the irony of her faith. Consider the irony of her fate as for this threshing floor. We'll go back there a second. Dr. Wolf said this. We would do well to ask ourselves whether Ruth was hilariously sneaking her way to survival or sadly sleeping her way to survival. Either explanation casts a seriousness on the scene that we might not automatically assume, which is Ruth and Naomi faced utter poverty and starvation. They needed to find a way to eat. Ruth took dire risks in approaching Boaz as she did. What was their plan if he refused? What if he took offense at her behavior and made her an outcast in the community? What if he had sex with Ruth, Ruth and then made her an outcast in the community? What would these widow's options have been then? This is a story about much more than how particular women survived the patriarchy of their time. It's a story about how we all continue the in-group, out-group mentality that divides us and then turns us into political pawns. So I ask you, in the kingdom of God, who is an illegal alien exactly? Can you show me one? In the peaceable kingdom, who gets to decide which of us belongs to which of us? If we build a wall, and thank goodness Jim Enhoff's come up with a way to pay for it, we are fencing out Ruth because Ruth's in the caravan. 
Ruth, whose devotion to cling to Naomi, we serenade at weddings and then demonize at the border. If you're going to vote your biblical values on Tuesday, and I hear prominent evangelicals urging that we vote our biblical values, then at least read your Bible first. <laughs> Who is the heroine or the hero of this story? Is it Ruth? Is it Naomi? Is it Boaz? Or is it all the above or none of the above? We tend to idealize characters in the Bible, but in the end, people do what they need to do for a chance at life. And for those of us who have never been forced to leave home and join the caravan, become a refugee, what Fred Craddock said is the ugliest word in the English language, refugee. Carrying a few things we own on our backs down a dusty road to a place we cannot see and may not even get to, we have no right, and this includes the President of the United States, to pass judgment on those whose desperation none of us even understand. You are worried about criminals in the caravan? I'm worried about the criminals running our country. What would you do? What would you do if you could not eat? What if your fields had all dried up and your children were crying in the middle of the night? What if you were as invisible as a foreigner, as powerless as a woman, as desperate as a father trying to save his children from war? Ruth is in the caravan. I told my colleague, Lisa Wolf, I was grateful to her for her book on Ruth, and I texted her a picture of me holding up the book and saying, thank you, I'm using this in my sermon, and she replied, Ruth is such, all caps, such a, necess a necessity in addressing immigration issues. And that was before she knew the title of the sermon. When I shared it with her, she replied, all in caps, perfect. In fact, she might even get prosecuted for prostitution once she gets to the U.S. and sleeps with an older man who is a citizen. After all, isn't her motive to just get pregnant with an anchor baby? I texted back, can I quote you? <laughs> she responded, please do. This way I get a little preaching without even getting up early. And let me close by saying this. First of all, it is really good to have friends and colleagues who can help you preach on Ruth. Second, Ruth is in the caravan, either by that name or a thousand others. Third, this night the soul of the church is required of us, just as on Tuesday the soul of the nation is required of the nation, and we must not fail. Sometimes I hear preachers say they wish they'd been born during one of those moments of real crisis in our country. So they could have preached against slavery, for example, or in favor of civil rights or women's rights or gay rights, to which I have to say, have you read the paper? Are you watching the news? Do you know what it means to be so divided and for presidential rhetoric to be so toxic that we even think we have to have a debate about whether words can actually incite violence. If they don't, then I should return my degree in rhetoric to the University of Oklahoma with a note saying, you were all wrong. The Greeks were wrong, Jesus was wrong, all the saints were wrong, Dr. King was wrong. Everyone who said that words matter were wrong. Because the truth is, 
as the vice president put it, everyone has their style. Well, that's true, but some are deadly. We are all living through a moment of real crisis. Won't you please come to the border or else join the other side? Listen up, church. Is this any time for us to lose our voice, to go back to sleep, to give up our message, to retreat into some privatized, market-based, individual, soul-saving irrelevancy? Ain't nobody going to turn us around, right? Can you say that? Ain't nobody going to turn us around. Ain't nobody going to turn us around. So the answer is no, as in no. As in, did you hear me? No. Just to be clear, no, 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 which perfectly rhymes with no. <laughs> Here's the thing, Ruth, Ruth is headed to the border. She's on her way with a few thousand of her friends. What are we going to do? Shoot her? No. Oh God, no. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.